Yes, Lord. I think about the lines that Aaron just sang from the bridge of that song, Lord. Who shall we say that you are? We recognize that without your revelation, without your manifesting yourself to us, we wouldn't know you. We would be lost and wayward, far from you in our hearts and in the ways and actions of our lives. And so we require, we need you to teach us who you are. And like that chorus says, you are the highest name of all names and you are all that you say you are. Thank you for telling us who you are. A gift that you certainly did not have to do. When we fell, when we became a fallen people, Lord, you easily were within your right to just let us be cast into judgment. And yet in your kindness and in your gentleness and in your graciousness, you revealed who you are. You revealed the name that's higher than every name. You revealed that you are the great I am. You revealed so many things about who you are and we can attest, having lived life uh, for many years represented in this room as Christ followers, that you are all that you have said you are. You have been a faithful God to each one of us in this room. You have been powerful in each one of our lives. You have been gracious when we have so often needed grace. You have been merciful to us when we've needed mercy. Like you say, you are the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate. One who doesn't shirk justice and yet gives love to thousands. God, you are that God, and we attest that tonight. We proclaim it. We confess your name this evening, that you are that God, the God that you've said you are. And we do that in the name of your glorious Son and by your mighty Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Aaron. Awesome. Well, tonight, <clears throat> we're going to, uh, going to go through our fifth letter out of seven. And uh, this fifth letter is to the church at Sardis. So, we've made our way through. We're now finally in chapter three, which is hard to believe. We're only three chapters deep. But now we're at the beginning of chapter three. And we'll go through six verses. Kind of a short night, which is probably good. Um, but it'll be six verses. Chapter three, verses one to six. And so as we start tonight, uh, just to let you know, this sermon is, is entitled, Examine Your Condition. Because that's what God has to say to the church at Sardis. Jesus has a specific revelation for them. And what it is as it relates to them, as we've seen, each of the churches is having a unique message. And as we see for tonight, for Sardis, that message is to examine their condition. Where are you at in your faith? 
And that's a priority for this church. And it's a priority you're gonna see because their condition is not good. And somehow, in the midst of their condition being so awful, so deathly, as if they're at death's door, somehow, in the midst of that condition, they have not realized it. They have not understood where they're at. And Jesus tells the church at Sardis, it is time for you to figure out where you are at. Because without knowing it, you're heading on a path that will lead to destruction. You are going to miss out on what I have intended for you. And that's his message to the church at Sardis that we're going to read tonight. Uh, I've forgotten a, a martyr story again. I, Jana mentioned that to me last week, and I, I forgot again. I've had a lot on my mind. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, but that's, that's, that's my bad. I said I was going to do it every week, and now that's two weeks I've forgotten. Uh, I'll make it up to you next week with three martyr stories. Uh, but this week, we're going to go right into the letter. So here's how Jesus starts his letter to the church at Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now again, I've told you, each one of the themes of the letters is contained in the introduction of who Jesus is. And what Jesus is saying about himself tonight is, I am the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you remember back from chapter one, what I uh, had said about the seven spirits is that another way to think of that is the sevenfold spirit. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And this reference to the Holy Spirit is using seven as that number of completeness, that number of perfection. And who is the perfect spirit? Who is the full spirit? Who is the complete spirit? That's the Holy Spirit. And so if we go back to chapter one, you see here in verse four, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on. I don't have the verse up here on the, on the screen, but it goes on to speak. And from the true and faithful witness from Jesus. This is a Trinitarian statement. It's from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son who speak to this letter in Revelation, okay? So he's taking that seven spirits from chapter one there, and then he's also taking the seven, uh, seven stars, which is from verse 16 of chapter one. In his right hand, this is the vision of the Son of Man, in his right hand, the Son of Man held seven stars, and he actually, if you remember, at the end of the chapter, he explains the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, okay? So this is the one who is high and mighty, who holds the spirit, this is how John would say it in his gospel, who holds the spirit without measure. Remember John 3? He's the one who has been given the spirit without measure. This is the one who has the seven spirits and is holding in his hand the seven stars, the one above angels, right? This is the one who's saying this. And what does he have to say to the church at Sardis? 
I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. This church is known for something. It's known for being a living church. It is active. It is out there doing deeds for God. It is preaching in his name. They have a name that you are alive. You are faithful, faithful Christians. Do you live up to your name? Jesus, and John records what Jesus says to this church, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Whatever from the outside looks like life, from the inside, there is no life. See, everyone that looks at the church at Sardis thinks, wow, what a great church. Look at these great Christians. Look how they're living. Look at what they do. Look at the way they love each other. Look at, but internally, Christ, the one who has the spirit, the one who holds the seven stars, he sees that there is no life. You are dead. Maybe you've even bought into your own reputation. Everyone outside thinks you're alive, and you know what? You probably think you're alive, but you're dead. So what's the uniqueness of the one who has the seven spirits saying that, the the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's unique to this church in this way. If you know uh, what the New Testament says about being a Christian, what is the definitive mark of a Christian? The definitive mark of a Christian in the New Testament is one who has the Holy Spirit. That is definitive, right? That's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, what does he say? He says, one who says Jesus is Lord is speaking by the Holy Spirit. And if one is speaking without the Spirit, they cannot say Jesus is Lord, which is the definitive declaration of being a Christian, confessing Jesus is Lord. But only by the power of the Spirit can one say that. What's the point of what Paul's saying? If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit. And if you do not have the Spirit, you are not a Christian. Paul makes that definitive. And when Jesus says this, I'm the one who has the Spirit, I think he's alluding to the fact that, listen, examine your condition. Are you Christians or are you not? Because everyone thinks you are. You have a name that you're alive. But I can look through to the heart of you and it looks like you're dead. The one who has the spirit without measure is telling you, you are dead. Church at Sardis. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. If there's anything left in you that truly loves God, that is really, truly committed, wake up, rouse yourself from your sleep and strengthen it because they were about to die. Even what was left, even all that you have left was about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You don't follow through. You have not seen it through to completion. What you are doing, 
are not the works of life, not the works of God, they're works of death. You have not completed what you need to do. What does he tell them to do? He tells them to remember. Remember. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. See what Jesus is saying here is remember, remember, think back to the beginning. Think back to the things that were offered to you in those first moments. The Church of Sardis, when you were first becoming Christians, do you remember what was given to you? Do you remember the word of God that was spoken to you, that you received and you heard? Keep those words and repent of your death. Repent of the death in which you walk. Because if you don't, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I do. Now, John is quoting uh, one of the gospel. Now, he probably isn't necessarily quoting the exact gospel, but he's referencing Jesus' teaching that is recorded in the gospels and specifically in Matthew 24. I don't know if you remember, early on in this series, I gave you other passages to, get, to consider and one of those passages was Matthew 24 and 25. It's called his Olivet Discourse. It's this apocalyptic section of the Gospel of Matthew. And so here he's, quote, he's talking about that teaching that Jesus gave, right? And it's out of Matthew 24. I'll show you that in just a minute. But what he's saying is you need to remember. You need to examine. You need to think upon. You need to reflect on how you are and who you are and how you're living. Because guess what? It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about your name and about your life and whether you are a good Christian or not. It only matters what one thinks and that one is Jesus. You can walk around and think you're a great Christian and everyone can think you have a name that's alive. None of it matters if Jesus thinks you're dead. Remember, examine, figure out where you are at. Because if not, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Matthew 24, verses verse 42. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples on the Mount of Olives before he's about to go to his death. Therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Then he gives this parable, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Figure out where you're at. Examine your heart. Because just like a thief who comes at an hour you do not know, you'll be left with nothing. 
All the good that you have, all that remains that you love and cherish, it can be taken from you in an instant. And just like that thief coming in the night, the Son of Man will come. And if you are not on the alert, if you are not prepared, if you have not examined who you are, be prepared to lose everything. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. Ready yourself. Examine yourself. Be prepared for his coming because when he comes, you will not know it. You will not know when it's happening. So you must be ready, like it says, in and out of season because you don't know. Don't think for one second you can skate by and live a decade of your life living like hell and expect you're gonna figure it out before Jesus comes back and get back right on the right track, right at the last moment, because you do not know when he'll come. Ready your heart now. Verse four, Jesus says, he remember, he's not speaking to an individual, he's speaking to a church. So on the whole, he says, ready yourselves. Strengthen what's left because most of what you have is dead already. Verse four, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. There are a few amongst the community who are true believers who have truly readied themselves. And along with that theme of examining yourself, how, how can it be known that, that they are true believers? Well, according to this, they haven't soiled themselves. You can look at their life and see. What is the clothing idea? What is that metaphor about? What is the idea of having soiled garments or pure white robes? Well, one of the passages that talk about this, there's several, but one of them is Zechariah 3. We've seen this before. We've already talked about this passage in Revelation already. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now listen. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. This Joshua, this high priest, is covered in filth. He's defiled. Listen to what the Lord says about his defilement. He spoke, this is the Lord, and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, now the metaphor is spoken plainly. See, I have taken your iniquity away, your sinfulness away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes, with white robes, with pure robes, with the robes of of a feast. (laughs) The filthy garment is a metaphor for what? Iniquity. Sinfulness, 
unrighteousness, depravity, whatever word you want to use to describe it. That's what he's talking about. Joshua, the high priest, is standing covered in filth because he's tainted by his sin. The Lord says, look it. Now remember, this is the Old Testament. The specifics of Jesus have not come into view yet. But the Lord is saying, I'm going to take your iniquity away and clothe you in pure, in pure white robes, in in festal robes. I will make you clean. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is the idea of purity. Let me go back here to verse four. There's a few who have not soiled their garments, they're righteous, and they will walk with Christ in white, in purity, in righteousness, because they are worthy, because they've lived righteously. Here, next, verse five, only two verses left, but in verse five, he gives the reward. Right? He ends each letter by talking about a reward for those who overcome. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. They will be made pure. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Here's the last verse. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He gives three rewards. You will be clothed in white. I will not erase your name from the book of life, and I will confess you before my Father. I will confess your name before my Father, before his angels. Now, I think those three examples are examples of reward given specifically to tell you how to examine your condition. You're going to be clothed in white garments. Well, how are all these people not examining their their condition? Because they're not looking at their garments. They walk by, head held high, looking around, living their life, and don't even take a second to look down and see what they're wearing. It would take a mere glance down to recognize that they're covered in filth. But they don't. No, the church at Sardis, by and large, walks in filthy garments, unashamed, unnoticing. But for those who are Christ, they walk in purity. They walk in white garments made clean. But God says, if you can overcome, you're gonna be clothed in white garments. Don't despair if you're in filthy garments. I can still exchange them for white, pure garments but you have to notice. You have to examine yourself to see if that's true of you. Look at your deeds, look at your life, look at, do you live in sinfulness? Do you live in iniquity? Like Zechariah 3 said. If you're covered in filthy garments, you can be sure you're not the one who's overcoming. The one who's overcoming is going to be, is and will, right, like like it says here. They will walk with me in white. They have not soiled their garments. 
They're already wearing white. They have not soiled what they're wearing. And guess what? Not only are they already wearing white, but I'm gonna clothe them in even better garments. They have not soiled what they have and a greater reward even is coming. Second, I will not erase his name from the book of life. This is interesting because this has a history, this erasing from the book. Uh, This translation, I don't love the translation erase because I think it misses the Old Testament connotations. The word behind that in the Greek, uh, which also shows up many times in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament, Old Testament Greek translation. In the Old Testament Greek translation called the Septuagint, that word shows up a lot, the word that stands behind erase. But it's translated consistently in the Old Testament. It's not translated erase, it's translated blotted out. And blotted out has a lot of Old Testament connections. Because this idea of being blotted out to literally not be remembered anymore is a very significant Old Testament theological reality. Shows up in many passages. It's first mentioned about Amalek, that they would be blotted out when Israel fights with them. But I'll show you two passages. One is Exodus 32. And this is an important passage. If you know Exodus, Exodus 32 is the fallout of the golden calf, right? They've received the Ten Commandments. I guess I should say they're going to receive the Ten Commandments. And what do they do? They're waiting for the Lord and they're like, hey, let's make an idol while we wait for the greatest revelation of God that's happened to date. We'll wait for the Lord. But you know what? While, while we wait, let, let's just make an idol real quick. And of course, there's, there's argument about whether they're trying to make an image of the God they actually serve or if they're worshiping some prior God that they knew in, in Egypt. There's a debate about that. Whatever the case, it's clear they should not do that. Bad choice. So, of course, Moses comes down. He has the tablets. He breaks them. They, they, you know, they, they know that something bad's coming because they know that they've done great, heinous evil. But Moses, Moses, one thing that's always forgotten about Moses, Moses is the great intercessor. I mean, this man puts up with so much from these people and consistently, till his death, he fights for this people that do nothing but complain and grumble against him. And here in Exodus 32, he's doing that. They've just betrayed the Lord, utterly betrayed him by worshiping an idol while he is in the presence on the mountain that they're sitting at the base of. So here's Moses approaching God in Exodus 32. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, that blot word is the same Greek word in this account that shows up in Revelation 3. It's the same word, but there it's translated in the New Testament as a race, not blot out. What is Moses saying here? He's saying, remove me from your book. Remove me from 
your presence. Remove me from memory of your people. Blot me out. What's that idea? It's the idea of having your name written down and literally just covering it with ink. It's just lost among the ink. Yeah, you have your name written in black ink and you think, oh, that, that's a, a stamp, right? You, your, your name's gonna last on that paper as it's written in ink. No, you can throw ink all over that and everything becomes black. It is blotted out. It literally, it it's just fades into the background of what's been done on the page. You're gone. Your name has been blotted out. Moses says, do that to me if you will not forgive this people's sin. And the Lord says, the Lord loves his servant. The Lord is good to Moses. I know he, he receives a harsh penalty for sure, but that's because Moses is so well esteemed by the Lord. And for what a great responsibility Moses has, he receives a great punishment. But here, the Lord who loves his servant Moses says, no, I'm not going to blot you out of my book. Whoever sinned against me, I will blot them out, but not you. Then the second, Psalm 69, here's another passage that uses this blotted out language. Right, he's, he's speaking of the wicked. Add iniquity to their iniquity. May they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. See, this book of life concept is not unique to the, the, to the book of Revelation. The book of life, this record of those who are among God's people, that's the book of life. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. That's Psalm 69. It's that same idea. In fact, it's that same phrase that's used in Revelation 3. May they be blotted out. So I will not erase or I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That's the reward. I'm not going to take you out of memory of the people of God. If you persist, if you overcome, you will not be taken out of the people of God but you will remain amongst them. And of course, that's significant. The book of life is significant when it comes to the book of Revelation, of course, when you get to the end and the books are opened and you see. In what way is that a way to examine your condition? Well, I think the idea of examining whether to see your, if your name is written in the books is to look at your, your condition it's to look at, are you, are you truly a Christian? Is your name found written in the book of God's people? Now, sure, that, that can easily be a proclamation just to you know, satiate your own will and say, well, yeah, of course it is because you know, I'm, I'm among God's people. But I think in this case, it's, it's really examining it, really looking at it. Do I find my name in the book of life? Do I believe the things that are required to be found among God's people? Would I find my name in that book if I looked? And then in more specifically in the last example, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Are you confessing Christ? Because of course, when Jesus says that in the gospels, what does he say right beforehand? 
When he says, I will confess your name before my father and before his angels, he says what? Right before that, it's, if you confess my name before men. This is a conditional statement that Jesus makes in the gospels. If you confess me before men, then I will confess you before my father. If you don't confess me before men, he what? He's not going to confess you before his father. It's one or the other. And so in this specific example, that reward relates directly, directly to whether you are a witness for Christ. That's another way to examine your condition. Are you witnessing for Jesus? And I don't just mean in the the smaller, more narrow way of evangelism, though that is true for sure. But I mean, is your life a witness for Christ? Do you witness for Christ in the way you live? By your word, by your deed? Are you confessing Christ in the way you live? Because if you're not, it says, I'm not gonna confess your name before my father. But here, if you're he who overcomes, if you are the one confessing Christ's name before men, I will confess your name. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. I think those are three ways to examine. Examine your deeds, whether you're clothed in white garments or soiled garments. Examine if your name's in the book of life. Or are you going to be erased? Are you among God's people? Do you live among God's people? Are you one who has believed the things necessary to be part of God's people? And are you confessing Christ? Are you witnessing to Jesus? Because he will confess your name before his father, but only if you do that before men, if you live in a way that confesses Christ before men. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think this is a um, timely sermon. I didn't necessarily plan it this way originally, but it worked out this way. Because I think this is an important lesson for the church in more ways than one. It's important to examine your condition, to see where you are as it relates to salvation. That's true. And that's what Jesus is saying in this letter to the church at Sardis. Make sure of where you lie. Make sure where you are. Examine the condition of of who you are and where you're at because if you don't, I'm coming like a thief in the night. And everything precious and good can be ripped away from you in an instant. But if you can overcome, I will clothe you in white garments. I will not erase your name from the book of life and I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. That's the letter to the church at Sardis. Examine your condition. See where you are as it relates to your faith. But I think another reality is to examine your condition. It's true for churches. That churches are meant to examine their condition. Examine where they're at. Examine what God is calling them to do or telling them to not do. In fact, this lesson in many ways is the essence of what I've said these letters are about. (laughs) Every church receives messages from the Lord. Every community that worships God 
And, and even in some of these situations, it seems even when they're failing at it, the Lord is still speaking to them, trying to correct them, trying to lead them down the path he wants for them, trying to help them repent of the things they're doing wrong and commending them for what they do well. And to examine your condition is really what each one of these churches has needed to do. They've needed to heed what God is saying to them. Ephesus needed to heed the letter to them, right? They needed to remember their first love. They needed to to not just, you know, they needed to remember the presence that was among them. They'd forgotten, right? The church at Smyrna, they needed to examine their condition and, and figure out what's going on and be prepared for the suffering that was about to come. That's what the Lord was saying. And the church at Pergamum, I remember this time, the church at Pergamum, right? They needed to examine their condition. They needed to know who they were. They'd forgotten. They were not of Balaam. No, they were God's people, not meant to eat food idolatrously offered to other gods. They were not meant to be committed to sexual immorality in worship of other gods. They were meant to be God's people. They were God's people. They were meant to know whose they were. To the church at Thyatira, they needed to examine their condition. They needed to see who they were, and for them specifically, they needed to watch how they lived because their deeds were not in line with who they were called to be. No, their deeds looked like Jezebel's deeds. Their deeds looked like like a pagan. And they lived like that. And they needed to watch how they lived because otherwise the Lord was coming in judgment for them. The Lord who searches the hearts and minds and will repay every man for what he has done. And now the church at Sardis, he says it explicitly, Sardis, look at yourself. Do you not see how? I mean, just look at yourself. You are filthy. Examine yourself. See where you're at. It's pitiable. (laughs) You're going to miss out on everything I have for you because I'll come like a thief and you won't know it. And I think that's a true lesson for every church. Listen for the Lord's voice. Listen for what he's saying to your church because he has unique and individual messages for each body. Now, I'm not even saying that happens you know, every week or something like that or some specified time frame, but there are different seasons in different parts of the life of each church when he has a message for them, when he has something to say to them. In that church, no matter who they are, if they are faithful, they need to listen to that message. They need to listen to the message of whether it's a rebuke or an encouragement or a commendation or it's a judgment that's coming. Listen to the message because it comes from the Son of Man, the one who walks among the lampstands, the one who holds the, the seven stars in his hand, the one who has feet burnished like bronze and eyes like a flame, the one who has the seven spirits of God. 
The one who's shining like the sun, whose hair is white like wool, like the ancient of days. Clothed in white garments and a golden sash about his chest. That one, that son of man still speaks to each church. And I think tonight, it's become increasingly clear over um, really probably the last months that I think the Lord has a message for Wellspring Church too. And we've got to listen to that message just as he spoke to the church at Ephesus, just like he spoke to the church at Smyrna, just like he spoke to the church at Pergamum, just like he spoke to the church at Thyatira, just like he spoke to the church at Sardis, Like next week, we'll see he spoke to the church at Philadelphia and the week after, how he spoke to the church at Laodicea. He has a message even now, 2022, 2,000 years later after this. Still has a message for every church. And he has a message for Wellspring Church. And I think that message for Wellspring Church is that it's time for Wellspring Church to be done. And we, uh, as, a, as a leadership team, we've prayed about it a lot, we've talked about it a lot, and uh, we voted on it last week. And uh, it'd be easy for me to look at this as like a failure. And that's one narrative I could tell myself and say, you know, we tried it and it just didn't work. Um, and in many ways... <laughs> The way things get defined are how you tell stories about them. The story you tell yourself about a thing can often become definitive of the story of that thing. And it's like I said, I think it'd be easy to have one story where this comes off as a failure. We tried and we just failed. Uh, But I don't think that's the story. I think increasingly we've recognized just the nature of what Wellspring has done over the last two years. Uh, That Wellspring was meant for something. That it had a purpose. And that that purpose uh, was to maintain a community through uh, a really trying crisis season for the church. And you know, through this COVID season, that Wellspring stood as a community that still met together, still loved one another, still held each other up, was praying for one another, was there for one another. And it saw us through that crisis. And I I won't speak for anyone else, but I'll say for me, it saw me through that crisis. And for two years, I had wonderful, wonderful community when no one was having community. And churches across the world, but particularly, I'll speak to what I do know, particularly churches in this country, were not having community. Wellspring did. And uh, to me, that's success. To me, that is Wellspring serving its purpose, which was to keep a community of people afloat through this dark season. And as just as we've looked at uh, kind of the numbers and way things have worked uh, and our continued 
Well, you know, I, I honestly, it's almost been a decline in numbers after two years. You know, we have not continued to grow. We've not continued to add people. But after two years of being together, we've actually shed people. And um, at one level, of course, that's heartbreaking to me. Uh, but at another level, I think that's evidence that we've done what we meant to do. We've done what we needed to do. And I will always, always love these years at, that I had with Wellspring. They will always be a treasure to me. Uh, and I could go, I could probably do another full sermon about all the things that I'm proud of, all the things that I could point to as successes, that I could point to as wins and victories, and maybe I will in a few weeks. Um, But I think for now, I just want to sit in the grief of what I just shared with you. And we'll have that moment to celebrate. Uh, But for this moment, I think it's a sad moment (laughs) for me. And probably all of you too. Uh, I love each one of you who's been here. I love every person who's walked through these doors and been a part, even one time, to just show up and been here and be a part. And, and we've prayed for those people. I mean, man, through two years, we've continued to pray for even many people who showed up once. Uh, that's just who we wanted to be as a church. Uh, I mean, my baby was born in this church. <laughs> Sophia was, literally, we started the church before she was born. She's been here every week since she was born. I'm so grateful for each one of you. Our plan is that we'll finish out kind of the month. Well, actually, the 29th of May is the last Sunday of May. It's the fifth Sunday in the month. We're going to actually end the 22nd. Uh, But the plan is we'll have two more weeks here at Hillwood. And then for the last week, uh, so that will be the, today is the first, so that will be the 8th and the 15th we'll have still here at Hillwood. And then the plan is for that last week, the last, the, the final week of Wellspring, which would be the 22nd of May, um, to be back at my mom and dad's house, really where Wellspring, I can't say it was birthed there because we did have those three <laughs> weeks at the rec center before the whole world closed down, but after three weeks, I mean, truly, the spirit of Wellspring was birthed in the meals and in the, the family time and in the sitting on the couches and on being on the TV screen and having Aaron lead us in worship and just like campfire circle. Like, that's where the spirit of Wellspring was uh, cultivated. And so we thought for the final week, it would be good for us all to do that again share one more meal, be all together, you know, be able to cry and laugh and, and share what we loved about Wellspring. And frankly, you guys can share what you didn't like about it too if you want as the closing. That's fine with me too. It's good to reflect on those things too. Um, but just sh- share our hearts with each other on that final week on May 22nd. Um, like I said, I'm grieved. Uh, you know, except for when we just did the rest series, but outside of that, you know, I preached to this church for two years now, straight, you know, without missing a beat. Oh, I think Lathan's coming. I think I just saw him walking by. I'll repeat it for him. <laughs> Everyone reset. 
<laughs> just kidding. I'll tell him. Uh, I'll tell him later. But uh, just let me finish what I'm saying. And no. Hi, Soph. No, no. Uh, that's that's the plan. We have two more, two more weeks for the two last letters, and then we'll have a final week after that. So three weeks left. Um. You know, all of you who have been a part of Wellspring consistently, you know that you're more than just a person who we go to church with. I mean, for one, I'll say one victory, one win, is of course that the group that's been consistent at Wellspring, it really is family to us. And I think one of the things that, uh, that I'm hoping for this summer is that even as we're saying goodbye to Wellspring, that it's closing, that it's done, that... Um, the true reality, the true church. Wellspring as an institution, yeah, maybe that'll be gone, but the true spirit of Wellspring is the community that this family of people have. And my prayer is that without having these Sunday night services, uh, that we would be able to continue to be together, continue to uh, just do what really is the deep life of the church, when you just sit in each other's presence and love on each other and speak to one another and commune. I love the word of God. I think I've proven that. I hope I've proven that after these two years. Um, But I recognize the community of the church doesn't grow just from listening to a sermon each week. The depth of the community grows as you actually live life together, as you sit in each other's presence, as you speak and love and, and commit to one another. And that's... I'm hoping at the end of this that that's what we'll do this summer, that we will be together and, and just love on each other and that with the Sunday night being freed up, you know, even for my kids, it's a late night, uh, that we'll be able to just get together in the afternoon and still share meals, you know, and maybe not every week, but, but consistently and, and just be together and how precious that would be to me because these relationships go beyond just whatever the institution of Wellspring, the real core of Wellspring, that lives on forever. I mean, we'll always be family. The relationships that are here are not relationships we made in the last two years. I mean, these are lifetime relationships that are represented here. This is family. Uh, so I hope you'll pray with me these next few weeks uh, for what I've, uh, what I've prayed consistently since we started even talking about this process of asking this question. Um, I've prayed that I would end Wellspring well. And uh, would you just pray with me that I'd be able to do that? I want to do honor and justice to what Wellspring has been and uh, close it with the value and worth that it deserves because I really do believe that it's been a church um, clothed in white garments, I guess is what I'll say. And and uh, even with Glenn, Glenn shaking his head when I said, you know, one narrative is, it, it, it is a failure. I don't believe that. And I think we walk out of Wellspring uh, knowing we served each other, that we did good to each other, and that we... Um, can trust that the Lord is not done with us yet, with any of us. He has more messages for us. This may be the last message he has for us as a church, as Wellspring Church. Uh, 
but he has infinitely more messages for each one of us as individuals and for every community we will ever commit, commit from this moment on to be a part of. He has messages for those communities too. I haven't done this in a long time, but uh, let me bless you. <laughs> Lord, let your face shine upon each person in this room. Would you bless them and do good to them? Would you let their names be great in your kingdom? Would you let the, the purity and, and just whiteness of their garments be evident to all? May they live righteously. May all the messages to all the churches apply to us. May we remember your presence. May we remember your presence is among us. May we be prepared for whatever suffering may come. Would we always know whose we are and who we are? Would we always watch how we live? Would we examine our condition? Consistently examine where we're at. Would we be encouraged like we're gonna talk about with the church at Philadelphia and that final hard week of being cast out like the church at Laodicea. When you warn us, when you have a message of warning like be cast out, would we hear that message and repent from what we need to repent of so that we would come back in line to your will? Bless each person here. Thank you for them. I pray all these things upon each person here in your son's precious name, in Jesus' name, and by your spirit's power. Amen. I love you all. My thought was, what? Oh, we're, we're gonna do communion. That's a good thing after a sad, after a sad announcement uh, to do communion. You know, because communion can be a sad thing, and that's a, that's a beauty. Uh, that's a, a true beauty of what communion is about, because we can always remember <laughs> that when Jesus was doing communion, and maybe no one else knew it, maybe they just thought they were having a meal, Jesus knew he was about to go to the cross. He shared a, he shared a sad meal with his followers, and that's okay to share that meal in the same spirit of grief, too. So let's uh let's take communion